You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Church family, good to see you this Sunday. Y'all doing all right? Everybody good? Come on. Matthew 22. If you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me. Matthew 22. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere under a seat in front of you. That's our gift to you, by the way. If you need one of those, feel free to take that home. But Matthew 22, we are continuing in our DNA series, looking at kind of the, really the DNA of who we are as Northway Church, our our mission, our vision, and now the undergirding values. And we've seen a number of uh, crucial foundational values of this church today. We're going to look at the value of love. And that, I promise you, we did not place this here because Valentine's Day is this week, but nonetheless, it's where we are. The shoe fits, we're going to wear it. The value of love, the fact that we as Northway Church are committing to a life of Christ-centered love to all people. And, uh, and this value for us becomes so essential that literally Jesus is gonna say, this is, this is of the utmost preeminent importance of all other importances when it comes to the church. That this is the main thing, one of the main undergirding identities of who we are Um, that he has called us to be and to do, and that is the love of himself and the love of those around us. Now, uh, to illustrate this, um, I I have a buddy of mine, he's a pastor friend, and he told me this crazy story. We're swapping college stories one time, and he was telling me when he was a college student at the University of Texas in Austin, he, uh, like many other college students, uh, were living in an apartment. They were absolutely broke, and they decorated like most college guys will decorate with a slew of cinder blocks uh, around the room as both their tables and their chairs. And, uh, and this made up their room. And he said, one day as broke college students, he was sifting through his laundry and found in a pocket, a paycheck that he had never cashed, which is like cardinal rule number one in college, don't misplace a paycheck. Could be your very livelihood. And he, so he found his paycheck, he went and cashed it. And, uh, and his thought was, man, at this point, this is kind of bonus money. So maybe he pulls his roommates together. He's like, maybe this is the opportunity to finally bling out this place. Like we've always wanted to do to substitute out the cinder blocks for something better. And so they kind of brainstorm for a little bit, man, if they could buy anything they wanted to, to decorate this apartment with this extra paycheck, what would they go get? And for them, it was unanimous. It was bean bags. And so... <laughs> Literally, he sends his roommates out, a couple of dudes that he has, his roommates, sends them out, says, just go down, there's a shop down here, get the best beanbags you can get, bring them back here, and we'll set them up together and enjoy some beanbag comfort in this palace of ours. And so they go out, and he said he expected them really back within an hour or so, and then the hours begin to pass, and they never came back. And fear began to sit. He's like, man, did something happen to them? Did they take my paycheck and then run to Mexico? Like, where are these guys? Where are these at? And finally, after hours, the guys come back. And he said, the craziest shock and surprise, when they walked through that door, not with beanbags, but with a ferret. <laughs> now, I don't know where the lines get crossed when the mission is pretty clear. I'm sending you out 
to get beanbags and somehow you return with a ferret. What, what happened along the way that gets you from point A to point Z over here? What, what happened? And really he said it was like a reverse Jack and the Beanstalk story. You know, I sent you out with a cow and you bring back beans. Here, I sent you out with beans and you come back with a ferret. And it was illustrating the idea of how easy it can be to really have a laser focus on this is why I'm here, this is what I'm about. And somehow through the telephone game, we get off course and end up chasing ferrets at the end of the day. And in many ways, what you're gonna see in Matthew 22 highlights this very fact that we have been given a command that is higher really than any other command. And yet somehow, if we're not careful, we can spend our days not making the main thing the main thing, but somehow settling for ferrets. And you're gonna see this in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, we're gonna see this command of love. Now, background on this text, just so you have some framework we're at. Matthew 22, the passage preceding this, it's nearing the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's about to go to the cross He's at the temple. He had just overturned the tables because the religious leaders had allowed money changers to come in and make a mockery of the worship of God. And Jesus, in frustration, righteous anger, overturns these tables and tries to realign them to what this temple was meant to be for. And this didn't sit well with some of the religious leaders. There's different sects of of religious leaders. And uh, one of those was the Sadducees. And they develop a plan that what they're going to do is they're going to come in and they're going to ask some trick questions to Jesus. And this was commonplace in Jesus's ministry because if they could ask him a trick question and if he answered it wrong, um, at, at worst, he'll prove to be a heretic and nobody will follow him. But maybe, maybe at the very least, he'll answer in such a way that will polarize his, his followers and divide them and he'll have fewer that will follow him. And so they ask him these questions and it totally fails. And so in verse 34, you're going to see a second group of religious leaders come in, the Pharisees, with their own question. You see in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer. Now, when you read that in your Bible, don't think attorney, think seminary prof. A lawyer asked him a question in order to test him. Teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, that's an interesting question with an underlying tension that was going on in that first century as well. See, the law of God, again, this isn't our trial law. This isn't constitutional law. This was the law of God, the Torah. This was, this was the foundational tenets that God had put in place to govern the nation of Israel. And, and the law wasn't just the 10 commandments. It's easy for us to go there and just go in the 10 commandments. The truth is, is the Torah, the, the law of God actually constituted 613 commandments. Over 300 of those were prohibitions, things we weren't supposed to do. And then 285 of those were, were positive commands, things you were to do. 613 laws. And what the rabbis would do in the first century and what they would do really all throughout is they would gather together and they would debate amongst themselves of those 613 laws, which ones were the lesser laws and which ones were the greater laws? Which ones were the felonies and which ones were the misdemeanors? 
And they would debate amongst themselves. And at the, at the very top of that debate was of all the laws, is there one of them that supersedes all other laws? This was a constant debate in Jesus's day. And is a constant debate with even Orthodox Hasidic Jews today. And Jesus hears this question. I mean, essentially what they're asking him, I mean, Jesus, which one do you think it is? Is it the Sabbath? Is it not to murder? Is it, is it not to have adultery? Is it don't have any other gods before me? Like, which is the greatest law of all the laws, Jesus? And again, they're hoping to divide his followers based upon his answer. And Jesus says to them, and what's interesting is Jesus, a lot of times in the scripture, will not answer straightforwardly to people that he knows in his omniscience are trying to trick him. They're not asking the question because they really want to know. They have ulterior motives. And when, when people do that, Jesus goes, I'm not even going to give you the answer because you don't want it. But this time, this question, this is too important for Jesus to be vague. He's going to come straight forward with his answer. When asked essentially, what is it that God primarily wants from his people? What is it of all the things that are commanded and prohibited in scripture? Like what is the most important thing that summarizes the essence of God's desire for his followers? And Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy 6 to begin with. A very famous passage in the Hebrew Bible for Jews known as quite frankly, known as the Shema, which means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one and you shall love the Lord your God. Every Jew knew this, still the mantra in, in Judaism today. And Jesus quotes this. And you see this in verse 37 and 38. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he drops a second one, though. Do you notice this? Out of Leviticus 19. And he says in verse 39, there is a second one that is like it. It's connected to the first. And that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, neither one of these are in the Ten Commandments, but both of these envelop all the Ten Commandments, let alone all 613. They are inextricably linked. And that's why Jesus says here in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Your entire Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament. He says all 613 commandments, if you boil them down, they boil down to two. You can take your entire Bible at that time and like a door on a hinge, your entire scripture hangs on these two commands. Love God and love people. And in, in other words, this is the one characteristic that should define Christ's followers more than any other characteristic that could define us. Think about that for a moment. Think about your own life right now. If we were to take just your life or my life, if we were to examine our individual lives and go, what is it about our lives that would define us more than anything else? If somebody were to take our social media accounts, our calendars, our debit cards, 
to take kind of the rhythms of our life and kind of boil it all down to one thing that screams, this is what defines this person more than anything else. What is that one characteristic would it be? Think about that from the standpoint of Northway Church. If you were to go out and take a poll in the community right around us here in Dallas and ask, have you ever heard of Northway Church? And if you have, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the name Northway? And let me just tell you something. If the answer to those questions is not our love for God and our unashamed love for the people that are around us, then we have missed the main thing. We are no different than a bunch of dudes who went out for beanbags and came back with a ferret. We missed it. And so real quickly this morning, here's what I wanna do. I just wanna refresh us. This is not a complicated text. It's complicated to obey. It's not complicated to understand, but I wanna refresh us simply of, of what Jesus meant with each of these two commands and their implications on the value that we hold to as Northway Church to unashamedly love those around us. The first thing, notice the first imperative that he gives here is to love the Lord your God. It's the idea here that for Christ's followers, for God's people, God doesn't simply wanna be prominent in our lives or in our church. God wants to be preeminent. He wants our affections for him to be greater than anything else that we could possibly love in this lifetime. Greater than our careers, greater than our spouses, greater than our children, greater than our hobbies would be the affection that we have towards God through Jesus Christ. Like God is to be the very center of our world by which everything else is intended to orbit around. This really goes back to Matt's message last week on worship. You can see how all of these values begin to flow. But this is to be what absolutely envelops our identity and our purpose is the love of God and the love of other people. And you go, man, why would we love God more than anything else? Well, the answer is actually threefold and it's all in one phrase in these words of Jesus. When he says, the Lord, your God, Lord, your God. All three of those words envelop the why we are to love him above all things. The first is because he is Lord. Some of your translations, not all, but some of those will take the liberty to actually put the word Lord in small, all capital letters. Anybody have that in their translation? Yeah, a few of y'all, right? Small, all caps. ESV won't do that, but NAS and others will. What they're trying to show you is that particular word in Greek for Lord is actually the direct Hebrew transliteration or translation of the word Yahweh, the specific title to who the Lord God is. This is not just any God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-keeping God who has been faithful to his promises to come save and redeem a people apart from their own works, a people who did not deserve his love and his ransom and his rescue, but out of his love for them, he came anyways and fulfilled his promises. He is Yahweh. But second, he's not only the Lord, he is God. Again, in Greek, this is the the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Elohim, which is in reference to the God who is almighty, 
who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is all-present, who is everywhere at all times at once, who is sovereignly ruling and reigning and moving the pieces to bring about his greatest glory and our greatest good. This sovereign God of the universe who moved heaven and earth to come get you. And thirdly, he's not just any Lord and God. He's your Lord and your God. He is not just some abstract phenomena that we meditate on and admire from afar like some piece of art at a gallery. He is personal. He is drawn near. He has come for us when we were at our worst. He's not just the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away your sin and my sin to adopt us and reconcile us and bring us into relationship so we can enjoy communion with this God for all eternity. A benevolent God, a personal God. And so our lives are filled with God's faithfulness to us. What you're seeing already in Jesus's words packed within them is there is no other love like this that exists on the face of the earth. Nobody has loved us the way that the Lord our God has loved us to come and rescue us at our worst. And so therefore, on those premises, why would we not spend the rest of our days loving and adoring and worshiping and exalting this God above anyone else in our lives? But then the natural practical question comes down, well, how? How do we do that? How do we as finite human beings actually love this eternal God who's loved us the way that he's loved us? Well, he gives us three ways in which we're to love God this way with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. First, with all of our hearts, that with all of our emotion, all of our affection, unreservedly, we would love this God. With, with this God, you don't have to guard your heart like you do with a finite fallen human being who might actually scorn the love that you give them. No, no, with this God, you don't have to hold your affections back. You can let your love spill over with this God personally and publicly to this God, not fearing that your love for him will be in vain. It will not be disappointed. Not this love. So you can love this God exaggeratedly. If there ever was a person who deserved to be loved in an exaggerated way, it is God. It's why we sing, it's why we raise our hands, it's why we surrender our lives because everything that I am is yours. But not only loving him with our heart, but also loving him with all of our soul. That word in Greek, the root word there is the word suke, which means breath. And what the imagery that comes to mind when you're loving God with all your soul, with all this breath, it's actually meant to take you back to the garden. It's the very being of you, who you are where that the same breath in the garden that God gave to Adam to bring him to life. It's the very essence of who we are and the air that we breathe that makes up the totality of who we are specifically here, though it's being used in terms of our will and our trajectory, our purpose in life. It's saying with every ounce of who I am, I am living this life to love you with all of our soul. But not only that, he says also love me with all your mind. 
And again, this goes back to Matt's message from last week out of Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, that we're, we're no longer, as those who've been redeemed, we're no longer to be conformed to this world, but by the renewing of our minds, we're to think differently towards God than we did prior to his rescue and saving. Like this is the piece where we, we literally are called to take every thought captive in devoted obedience to Jesus Christ. And again, even goes back to our scripture value, the importance of a, a deep abiding in the word of God in such a way that would, would kindle the affections of the mind towards God and who he is. Now, here's the thing. These three things, these are not separate compartments. You turn on your heart, then turn on your mind, turn on your, your very being. No, th this is not it. Like these three things are actually in the Hebrew account. When you get into Deuteronomy 6, they're actually all in one. They're describing the totality of the love that we're to have as a person towards this living God. It's God saying with every faculty of who you are, every faculty that I have given you, fix your delight, fix your affection, fix your mind, fix your very being on me in unreserved love. And God is calling for a holistic love for himself. This is what is to mark Northway Church. But it doesn't stop there because there's a second command, remember, that he gives that's like the first. When he says that we're also to love our neighbor as ourself because this is like the first one. Now, that's interesting because the question a lot of us have, the question that was around in Jesus' day, same one in our day is, well, who's my neighbor? This was asked of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. You don't need to turn there, but remember the story of the Good Samaritan, a lawyer, a rabbi, a, a, a student of the, the, the biblical law comes to Jesus when Jesus says to love his neighbor and he goes, well, who's my neighbor? And what this guy was trying to do in that account is he was trying to justify his own self-righteousness by saying there are certain people that, yeah, I'll love because they benefit me. And there's other people that I don't like, let alone love, who bring no benefit to me, therefore I will not love them. And he's trying to get Jesus to agree with him and Jesus will not. So what Jesus did in Luke 10 is he tells a story, story of the good Samaritan, right? This guy who's wounded by the side of the road and all the people that you would expect who claim to have tasted the love of God just walk right around him. And yet it's the Samaritan, the arch enemy of Israel, the religious enemy of Israel, who's the one that stops and demonstrates love towards this person. What Jesus is trying to communicate in that story is he's trying to communicate that your neighbor, first of all, can be anybody that's around you. Anybody that you come into contact with can constitute as your neighbor, where you live, where you work, where you play. But more specifically, what Jesus is trying to show in that story is that your neighbor is actually somebody who cannot benefit you, but you're still called to love them anyways. You go, how do you do that? How, how do you love somebody that cannot only benefit me, but I actually just don't even wanna tolerate them? How am I called to go love them? And Jesus gives us the how in that statement by loving them as you love yourself. Like we're to seek to love and care for other people in the same way that we care for our own selves. It's this reason why Paul tells husbands to love your wives like your own bodies. It's the reason why Jesus said in Matthew 7, as we quote the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. 
In other words, let self-love in this moment be your guide with the same zeal, interest, and priority that you seek for yourself on a daily basis, always putting your benefit first, do that towards others. Always putting their benefit before your own. This is an unconditional kind of love that we don't have naturally within us, that it must be given out to all people, even those whom we have a difficulty loving, especially those whom we have a difficulty loving. Remember Jesus's words in Luke chapter six, when he said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But I say, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You're called to love this way because as children of God, that's how God loved you when you could give nothing back. I got to tell you the irony of this week. Some of y'all know I spent, I spent uh, the, this past week in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, is the craziest time in the entire world to be in Washington, D.C. was this past week. And I went there with Buckner International to spend multiple days meeting with congressmen and senators and heads of state advocating specifically for impoverished families who so desperately need resourcing, and in particular, advocating for the Bachman Lake community right next to us here, next to Northway, and specifically even the TJ and Carrie families uh, that were impacted through the tornado. And it was a crazy week sitting in some of these meetings. And at the end, I was invited into the National Prayer Breakfast. If you followed anything about the National Prayer Breakfast, I mean, it was, it was crazy. First of all, the room's just surreal. Sitting in a room, I don't care who the president is, sitting in a room when you hear, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, I mean, there's something awe-inspiring about that, something about being in a room with 140 different nations represented, all different ethnicities, all gathered there, sitting there from kings and parliament members all the way to the, the cast of Duck Dynasty. It was a weird room, all right, to be in. <laughs> and then if you saw, the, the keynote speaker was Arthur Brooks, who is a professor at Harvard. He's a writer for the Washington Post, and his message was on loving your enemy, on loving your neighbor. And it was a good, straightforward, little 10-minute homily on it. The hard part for me is it just dropped short because he never got into the, how are you able to do this? Because the truth is, as fallen human beings, we can't love our enemies, not in our own flesh. And he never got there. And I felt that tension. And then, of course, Trump comes out. And if you followed that thing, his opening remarks, he looks at the speaker and goes, yeah, I can't do that. Uh, I can't love my, my enemy. And you're like, oh, dang, this just happened right here. And, and it's because, and the awkward tension, he's got Pelosi sitting right next to him. This, you can feel the tension in this room. It's like, oh gosh. And he drops this. And one that he was just saying, he can't love his enemy. He's saying, I won't. And I wanted from the depths within me just to stand up and go, yes, you can. Because there's a greater power that has come down to show you what that's like by loving you. But I couldn't stand up because there were secret service people all around me. 
I wasn't going to get tased. I was going to get shot right then. I didn't say a word. It was crazy. But y'all, that's the reason. When, when Jesus stands up and says, listen, the greatest commandment is that you would love God with everything that you are and you would love your neighbor in the same way that you would love yourself. The truth is you can't do that unless you have first tasted what it looks like to be the recipient of that kind of love from our God who sent his son to come love us at our worst, to love us when we hated him, to love us when we were spitting in his face. And yet he came and gave us mercy. Like there's no other kind of love like that in the world. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 5, the end of verse 5, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die, rarely die for a righteous person. Maybe perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. That's human love. If the condition is worthy enough, if this person can benefit me somehow, maybe I'll lay my life down for them. That's human love. Oh, but God's love, whole different category. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, still in our sin and rebellion, Oh, that's when Christ came to die for us. See, what you, what, you, what you see, what Paul's trying to say is God is indiscriminate in his love. And so should we be. In the same way that God has loved us and reconciled our broken relationship back together with him to enjoy him for eternity, now go and do the same with the earthly relationships around you, demonstrate that kind of love. And the reason you can is because one, you've been given a model and two, you've been given a supernatural power through the Holy Spirit. Same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same one that gives life to your mortal bodies. So you can do what is humanly impossible to do. And that is to love your neighbor. So do you see here what we are to be about as Northway Church? A church that loves God with everything that we are and loves those around us with the same priority that we would give ourselves because this is how our God has loved us. And I love, by the way, how the apostle John brings these two commandments together just like Jesus did. They're inextricably linked. John tells us in 1 John 4, 19, the only reason we know how to love, the only reason we know what love is, is because he first loved us. God was the pace car. God set it in motion. He showed us what love is. Otherwise we would never know what it is, but it doesn't just end there with God's love for us and our love for him. In verse 20 and 21 of that same passage, John says, if anyone therefore says, I love God and yet I hate my brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother or his sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. They are inextricably connected. You can't pull these two apart and say, I can do one and not the other. They go hand in hand for a believer in Jesus Christ. I love how Scholar Colin Cruz restates this, John's words. He says, if people cannot carry out the lesser requirement to love those around them whom they have seen, 
then there is no way they can carry out the greater requirement to love God whom they have not seen. Any claims to know and love the unseen God must be validated by their love for those who can be seen. The nature of the true experience of God is such that it cannot exist without manifesting itself in a love for God's people. Northway Church, I promise you, our city right now is searching desperately for this kind of love. This is in our vision statement. We want them to encounter the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Jesus. They're searching for it, but they're finding it in lesser things. And we have been given the unspeakable privilege as those who have tasted this love to go give it away to those who are around us, to go take the vertical and extend it horizontally, not counting others' trespasses against us, but forgiving their debts and loving them with the truth and the love of Jesus Christ, to bring them into relationship with God. I promise you, that's the true love that they're really searching for. And we who claim to love God, we must go and we must go love our neighbor. That must be what we're known for is this unashamed value of Christ-like love. It's got to be embraced here at Northway Church lest we spend our day proving that we're chasing ferrets. Can I give you just five quick exhortations that have been on my heart this week leading up to this? Number one, we have got to challenge ourselves here at Northway to fight for inclusive community and evangelistic hospitality rather than just settling for exclusive community and consumeristic hospitality. And here's what I mean by that. We've gotta be willing, yet we, we must invite others in to come taste this love that we've been given in Jesus Christ. We must, and that will be disorienting, it will be disrupting, but we must do it. It's, it's the reason why we took some steps forward from our traditional home group model into our gospel community model, because we're trying to intentionally create rhythms that our flesh doesn't naturally wanna do. On a, on a normal day, what we want is to cocoon. We want to huddle together as believers and that's, there's a good thing about that, but we want to do it so exclusively that we don't want anybody else busting in and disrupting this thing that we've got. And so in gospel communities, we've made intentional rhythms to think more outward as well as inward, both at the same time to invite others in to taste and see that God is good. But we don't wanna do that. But that's exactly what God did with us. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, are in heaven just sitting there going, you know what? We ain't gonna, no, I ain't going down there for them. We got to, it's so good. You invite them in, it's gonna ruin this whole thing. No, they sent Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to come and rescue and ransom a people and bring us in. And you would think that we, who are in these gospel communities, I know it's hard. I know we've had so many years of just kind of huddling together and we don't want the intimacy to end, but that intimacy has got to be open to inviting others into it. And, and so we've got to push a little more in that area, which probably means true. We're going to have to slow down and prune our activities in such a way that we've got actually margin to love people. There's got to be something. We, we've, most of us have the intent to love others. We just don't have the time. 
And we need to carve out space to do that. Second thing though, at the same time, as much as we want to love those around us and invite them in and be, bring them into this kind of love. Secondly, we've got to also firmly practice our brotherly sisterly love for one another in this room. This is what Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, I've said this before, you would think that Jesus would have said, by your love for the broken people surrounding the church in Northwest Dallas, that's how they're gonna know you're my disciple. But he doesn't. He says, actually, by the way that we love one another in here first, that's how they're gonna know this thing's real. We cannot try to cash a currency in the city around us that we are not depositing first in this space with one another. We've got to do a better job of trying to outdo one another in love. We've got to do a better job of modeling what it looks like to be part of a healthy family. And, and, and I'll speak all generations of what it means to actively think about how we can serve and love and care for one another and outdo one another in love in here constantly. I mean, that needs to be the, 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 the temperature, the barometer of how we're doing as a church is how well we'll love one another in here. And let me just, while I'm at it, just simply say to singles as well, we've got to get to the place where we stop viewing every opportunity with somebody else as a potential romantic love. Like they, let, it, let God do that. First, we've got to view each other as brothers and sisters part of a same family where it's not awkward. We can spend time together and serve one another and love one another in the way that God has wired us to do so as a family, as the church of Jesus Christ. Now, if that friendship catches fire, praise be to God, we'll set up some altars right here and get that married done, all right? It'll be done. <laughs> but we've got we to be brothers and sisters. Thirdly, we got to understand that true love for our neighbor has to, has to be accompanied by the truth of God's word. There is a mantra in our culture right now about tolerance and inclusivity in all areas. And there are tenets of that that certainly we can align with and hold to, but really what's being said in our culture apart from Christ, what it means for tolerance and inclusivity means that true love means accepting my definition of who I say I am and you not judging me by any other standard but mine that I've determined for myself. And you need to know right now that is not biblical love. That is damning. That is hateful. True love begins not with man's definition of love and identity. It begins with God's definition of love and identity. And understanding that he has, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. It's not like God is about love. God is love. So we start with him. And, and so we understand that God has set forth the definition of what love is in a way that leads to his greatest glory and our greatest good and human flourishing. And to run counter to that is not loving, but to call somebody into alignment to that is loving when it's done with a heart of truth and love. That's why they, we have to have both gospel deeds and gospel words in order to have true gospel love. You, you, want, you can't have one without the other. And so we must be grounded in God's word and unashamedly pursue people knowing their greatest love is found in his truth. Number four, we need to run to the front lines of those who are in greatest need of love in our community and not wait for tragedy to drive us there. Y'all, there is so much brokenness in our community. You don't have to go looking for it. It's just there. 
The stories that you'll encounter of your neighbors, if you took the time to get to know them, you'll see how much brokenness is there and how much need of love there is there. And I'll just tell you this, when the tornado hit us, I was amazed by how the Holy Spirit moved both in and through our church to respond so quickly and so faithfully to love our community. And it was so beautiful. I just long for the day that it doesn't have to be a tornado that drives us to do that that we would already be compelled by the love of God that we've received, that we cannot contain ourselves, but to enter into the circles and spheres around us, to point them to the hope and the love and the truth that is in Jesus Christ, that they could see the truth, the goodness and the beauty that really is found in him. That we've got to run to those front lines. But fifth and lastly, I'll just say this, in this process, we've got to guard against this drive to love our neighbors and the drive to love God, that it would not be fueled out of duty, but rather would be fueled out of delight. There is no guns pointed at our head by anybody, by God, by the scriptures telling you, you need to go love people or else. What you see in scripture is a people who have so tasted of the love of God that they cannot help but enjoy the very sheer delight of being leveraged by God to go love those whom he's called us to love. It's a delight to go love that way. Can I just encourage you to take some time this week, do an old inventory that we've done for years around here, sit down and journal out kind of a stirring and stealing exercise. What are the things right now that stir my affections for God and for other people? Just list those out. What are those things that when you do this, when you read this, when you're around this, it literally kindles your affections to want to love God more and love other people as he's loved us. And then do those things. And then separately make an inventory. What are the things that steal from those affections? What are the things in my life right now? What are the influences that are around me that are actually choking out my desire to love God as he should be loved and to love others as I've been called to love them? And then let's actively repent from those things. But nonetheless... Understand this, we are a church that must unashamedly be committed to a life of Christ-centered love to all people, lest we be a people who are sent out for beanbags and come back with a ferret. Amen? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray. Father, just grateful for your love for us. Thank you that you have sent your son as the ultimate demonstration of just how much you have loved us. Not holding our trespasses against us, but through Christ's work on the cross, his broken body has shed blood. God, you have forgiven us, you have adopted us, you have brought us into relationship to enjoy you for eternity. Would you, God, by your grace, allow that kind of love to be the vertical deposit in our lives that compels us to extend it horizontally. Overwhelm us with that love that we could not help but let it spill over. God, we pray this, that Northway Church in the days ahead will be known by our love, our love for you and our love for others. We pray for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.